0: In the month of the sun, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me which I had given when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite's servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem." This is the word of the Lord.
1: Week. Uh, started last week, I invited the boys and girls to come up to the front for me to pray with you before you are the story keepers, where you may be the only one out in the world, you're friends, friends. Oh, here's Luke, Luke and Ireland, hiding in the organ. <laughs> All right, so let's, let's pray for you guys before you head out to Story Keepers and Nursery. Let's pray. Put our hands in the air. Please put your hands in the air. Bring them down past your eyes. Close your eyes. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us to church today, from the youngest to the oldest. We pray for boys and girls as they are in Story Keepers or in Nursery that you would bless them. We pray that ones in Story Keepers will, will learn much about you. Learn from each other, listen well to each other, and to Miss Tara. And we thank you for this opportunity. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. I hope that you guys can have. Let me uh, pray, and then we'll uh, think about the passage that Debbie just read. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, its richness, different types of uh, literature that we have in the Bible, from letters to uh, narrative, to prophecy, to poetry, as we uh, continue in the series in the book of Nehemiah, uh, which might be familiar to some of us and not so familiar to others that you would uh, speak to us today. Some of us here, still working out what we believe about you. Others of us have been seeking to live a life of faith and obedience for many years. But you are the great God who can speak into every one of our hearts today. And so we pray expectantly that you would do so. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There was uh, one aspect of our sabbatical uh, this summer that I hadn't anticipated at all beforehand. It was how often we would encounter roads that were essentially one lane only for traffic going in both directions. It happened in the south of England, happened on the Greek island of Andros, it happened in the Isle of Skye in Scotland. And the solution for cars driving these narrow roads were what were called passing places. Uh, on the Isle of Skye, which is uh, where Tara took this picture, this worked uh, the best as the passing places were frequent. They were very well signposted and the landscape on the Isle of Skye tends to be very open so you could see well ahead uh, if cars were coming the other way. The island of Andros, uh, they, there weren't signposts, the passing places weren't quite as generously spaced but you could fairly well see a- ahead of where you were going and see if a car was coming the other way. In Devon, however, in the southwest of England, it was a whole other story. You'd drive these bendy, narrow roads with large head roads on either side. So basically, you had rarely any idea at all until the very last minute if a vehicle was coming in the opposite direction. And once you came face-to-face or bumper-to-bumper with the other car, one of you would have to reverse back to the last passing place that you'd encountered so the other car could could get past you. I will readily admit that this was one of the most stressful times of my sabbatical. And it was not uncommon for me, and I think probably for Tara in the passenger seat, as we approached another bend in the road with obstructed view to send up a quick prayer that said, Lord, please don't let there be another car coming the other way this time. As far as we know, Nehemiah never had to deal with the challenges of narrow, bendy, hedge-road-lined English roads. But as we see in our passage today that Debbie just read for us, he certainly had an occasion to send up a quick prayer to God. Indeed, in a situation much more dangerous and life-threatening than driving in Devon. And it's really based on this passage that we now have a phrase for the those quick one-lined prayers that we might send to God. We we tend to call them arrow prayers. Prayers that we shoot up to God when we're in need of help on the spot right now. But as we're about to say, see, this, this arrow prayer of Nehemiah's did not happen in a prayer vacuum but indeed kind of was prayed in the context of a whole foundation of extended prayer. So we saw last week in chapter 1, when Nehemiah received news uh, that despite the return of many of the Jewish exiles from Babylon to Jerusalem, the walls of Jerusalem were in ruins he was, and he was distraught. And Nehemiah entered into a period of weeping and mourning and, and fasting and praying before the Lord. From the time markers mentioned at the beginning of chapter 1 and then chapter 2, we realize that this period of extended prayer lasted for four months. Nehemiah persists in prayer for four months, petitioning the Lord that he would do what he had previously promised to his people he would do, and that was to restore Jerusalem. The specific petition of Nehemiah concerning the restoration came in chapter 1, verse 11. We saw this last week. Nehemiah prays, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And at that point, reading chapter 1, we don't know to whom Nehemiah is referring when he says, grant him mercy in the sight of this man. We're saying, what man is he talking about? Well, Nehemiah breaks the suspense beautifully with his final statement of that chapter. He says, now I was cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah was cupbearer to King Artaxerxes of Persia, a thousand miles east of Jerusalem in the Persian city of Susa. Nehemiah's prayer concerned leveraging his relationship with the king to move from prayer to action for the sake of Jerusalem. But he knew it had to be in God's timing, at God's pace. So here's what we're going to uh, learn from Nehemiah today. Here's sort of today's sermon in a sentence. The one who moves successfully from prayer to action never loses sight of the good hand of God one who moves successfully from prayer to action never loses sight of the good hand of God. So we do that. We're going to notice three things about God in this passage. First of all, the availability of God. Secondly, the power of God. And thirdly, the enemies of God. Let's look, first of all, at the availability of God. We. Pick it up in verse 1 of this chapter. The month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. It's worth pointing out here that as we start this chapter that being the cupbearer to the king was much more than just being a butler. So we see here it did mean that all drink, and we can assume all food, went through Nehemiah before it went to the king, but Nehemiah was much more than a sort of human filter of what was to enter the king's body. In fact, for his own safety, you can bet that Nehemiah had command over the palace staff, so that he would know exactly what was coming into the palace and who was hired to work in the kitchen and who would be serving food and drink at the king's table. And as such, he would have been a man of great command with extensive and deep connections, a man who would have had the king's trust. So Nehemiah was not just some butler doing frequent taste tests, but a high-ranking official with massive influence and power in the palace. And for four months, since hearing the news of the ongoing devastation of Jerusalem, Nehemiah had been praying and fasting for Jerusalem, but at the same time doing his job without his countenance before the king showing any indication of his deep concern for his people in their city. But things were about to quickly change. Look at verse 2. The king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. The commentators are divided as to whether Nehemiah had deliberately decided that this was the day to look mournful, to draw a reaction from the king, or whether given the four months of fasting and mourning, it was inevitable that the king would eventually notice the physical and emotional deterioration. I tend to go with the second of those options, that his sad countenance was natural, it wasn't manufactured. But either way, the king had noticed that something was wrong. And he asks Nehemiah why he looked so sad. And Nehemiah tells us that upon hearing that question, he was filled with fear. The author Susan Cain, a hero to many of us, as she explored the hidden superpower of being introverted in her book, Quiet, earlier this year released her new book, uh, Bittersweet, with the subtitle, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole. It's a wonderful book. But in the second half of that book, she addresses what she calls the tyranny of positivity, what some people refer to as toxic positivity, this cultural message that all of us are sent that no matter what is happening, we should just be putting on a happy face soldiering through the trials of life and whistling cheerfully. That our culture discourages us from going to a sad place, a place of longing, and certainly never going there when you're at work or in a public setting. My guess is that some of you know exactly what she's talking about. Well, it turns out that the tyranny of positivity is not a new modern thing at all. It existed in fifth century BC Persia because palace etiquette required all the servants to look happy in the king's presence to create the impression that his presence always produced total joy. Failure to be happy was thought treasonable, an insult to the king. It could indeed result in the death penalty, should the monarch so decide. So it's no wonder that when Artaxerxes notices Nehemiah's sadness, Nehemiah, would be scared stiff nevertheless he gathers himself and he replies verse 3 let the king live forever why should not my face be sad when the city the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire response to the king nehemiah is honest but he's he's prudently honest he reveals the source of his grief in personal terms not in political terms that the cause of his sadness was the dishonorable state of his family's homeland. Nehemiah knows how much is on the line here. He's he's speaking to the king, who was the one who had called a halt to the work of rebuilding Jerusalem, the one who had allowed the destruction of the half-built walls. But then, miraculously, the king says to Nehemiah, So what are you requesting? Verse 4. And all of a sudden, after four months of weeping and mourning and fasting and praying, a question is asked that that appears to possibly be the beginning of a stunning answer to prayer. Nehemiah had asked for the seemingly impossible, an audience with the king about the welfare of Jerusalem, and it was happening. But before he responds to the king, he knows there's one thing he needs to do first. Verse 4 again, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Here was Nehemiah's arrow prayer. You get a sense of the, of the necessity to this prayer here, That as Nehemiah pre- prepares to present this massive request. You, you can feel, to an intimacy to this prayer, that he's communing in secret with a caring God, not with a distant deity. But I think the thing that strikes most of us as readers is, when we read this is, is the sense of the immediacy of this prayer which points us to this first point of our sur- of the sermon the availability of God that at any moment of any day in any situation we can talk to the almighty sovereign god of this universe we don't have to get away to a quiet secluded place we don't need a prior appointment we're never put on hold Then and there, in the presence of this human king, Nehemiah is at the footstool of heaven. It's a children's song that we've sung here, although I think it's over a decade since we last sang it. Uh, But it goes like this. Prayer is like a telephone for us to talk to Jesus. Prayer is like a telephone for us to talk to God. Pick it up and use it every day. We can shout out loud. We can whisper softly but he'll always hear our call. He'll always hear our call. I'm pretty sure the 17th century French Archbishop Francois Fenelon did not know that song, but he agreed with its message. He advised his readers to quote, make good use of chance moments. He's talking about when you're waiting for someone or standing in a line or traveling or, Make such good good use of such chance moments, for at such times it is easy to lift the heart to God and thereby gain fresh strength for the tasks ahead. One moment will suffice to place yourself in God's presence, to love and worship him. If you wait for convenient seasons, you will run the risk of waiting forever. The less time one has, the more carefully it should be stewarded. The immediacy of Nehemiah's prayer is a reminder to us of God's constant availability to us. And just before we move on from this first point, let me, let me encourage you to do a, a quick comparison of your own prayers to those of Nehemiah here. So in chapter 1, remember, we see him first spend four months in a concerted season of prayer for Jerusalem. However, here in chapter 2, when it's time for action, he's also quick to pray in the moment, to speak an arrow prayer as he faces his, his fear. Nehemiah knew how to pray both ways, sustained prayers and arrow prayers. I'm guessing that most of us probably do one type of prayer more than the other. We might be very good at firing up arrow prayers when we're feeling desperate and helpless. Maybe some of us here today, we would say, well, yeah, I'm not yet a Christian here, but i say, yeah, I've done that. I've, I've shot up a prayer at a time of great need. So we can be good at firing up the arrow prayers, but but rarely do we take time for earnest, focused, persistent prayer. And then on the other hand, there may be some of us who who have a very good discipline of a daily prayer time, but then after we shut our Bibles, we, we barely say another word to God for the next 24 hours, going about the rest of our day as if he doesn't even exist. Healthy relationship with God is nurtured by the practice of both types of prayer, which we can do because we know that he's always available. The availability of God. Secondly, the power of God. You know, it's not uncommon when talking with people about prayer for us to say or to hear other people say, you know, yes, I'm a firm believer in the power of prayer. And I have to confess I'm not a big fan of that kind of language for the simple reason that it suggests that there's power in the simple practice of praying, regardless of the identity of the one to whom that you are praying. You see, with Christian prayer, the power doesn't reside in our praying. The power belongs to the one to whom we pray, who's the God of the Bible himself. That when you're praying to the powerful God who created the universe, who sustained everything we see, who has made himself available to us 24-7. And he's done that by overcoming the barrier between us and God through the life and death and resurrection of his son. When you're praying to that powerful God, yes, prayer changes things. Which is what we dramatically see in the next part of the story here in chapter 2, pick it up at the end of verse 4. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king... And if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Nehemiah seems to recount this scene, I think, almost just to draw us in, to make us almost feel like, like we're there holding our breath with Nehemiah as he gasps a prayer and braces himself to respond to the king. I mean, Nehemiah hasn't up to this point dared to even mention to the king the thing that is on his heart. But now, miraculously, it's the king who's opened the door for him to bring it up. So Nehemiah begins with just one request, that he might have permission for a season to exchange cup-bearing for construction. And rather than refuse the request, Artaxerxes instead asks Nehemiah, well, how long will you need to be gone for? Nehemiah tells him. And Nehemiah obviously decides that since God has, has clearly softened the king's heart at this point, well, he's just going to keep going with the requests. So he asks for letters, giving the royal seal of approval to his mission so that he can have safe, safe passage from Susa to Jerusalem. Oh, oh, and one more thing, O oh king. I'm going to need materials. I'm going to need resources. So Nehemiah asked essentially for permission to access as much timber as he needs from the royal forest for this building project. I mean, talk about bold. And the king's reaction, look at the end of verse 8. The king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah prayed and the power of God is magnificently put on display. Everything that Nehemiah asked for was granted, safe passage, raw materials. Indeed, the king seems to give him more than he was even asked for. He actually, we, we read, as we read on in Nehemiah, realize he's appointed him as provincial governor, which will give Nehemiah unassailable official standing. He even sends army officers and cavalry soldiers with Nehemiah for his safety on his journey back to Jerusalem. All this was truly miraculous. It involved a direct reversal of the king's previous policy to have the building of the wall stopped. How do you explain the about face, the change of direction? Nehemiah knew how to explain it. It was because the good hand of the Lord was upon me. This was the good hand of the God who had previously promised that he would restore Jerusalem in order to fulfill his promise to send a savior to rescue and restore us. This was the good hand of the God who always keeps his promises. One who successfully moves from prayer to action never loses sight of the good hand of God. Nehemiah knows this is all because of God, the power of God. And before we move to our last point, I I want us just to notice a couple of things here. First of all, when the king asks Nehemiah what are you requesting? Notice that Nehemiah's prayer is not, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, he's asked me what I want. I haven't, I've been praying all this time. I haven't even thought about what I'm going to ask him. Lord, help me to think of something to ask for now. There's none of that here. In other words, it's clear that Nehemiah's requests were not a spontaneous, off-the-cuff, spur-of-the-moment thing. Nehemiah is not flying by the seat of his pants here, making this up as he goes along. There's nothing haphazard about his reply to the king. Because you see, Nehemiah obviously believed not only in dependent prayer, but also in deliberate planning. That in the life of faith, waiting time is never wasted time. God has us in the waiting room of life, and he seems to a lot at times. As we're praying for whatever is on our hearts, we might be praying for the building up of his church again, or the moving forward of his kingdom, or the coming to faith of our loved ones, or the demonstration of his justice and his righteousness in this world. We're not to be sitting on the benches, twiddling our thumbs, restrained from doing anything we to be thinking creatively of how we might prepare for if and when God answers our prayers and imagining what skills we might need, what next step plans should be in place, how we might better be ready for that day. That's what Nehemiah was doing during those four months of prayer. That dependent prayer was accompanied by deliberate planning. But there's another thing I want you to notice here, and it, it, you have to Think about Nehemiah and Ezra together here to to see this. Look with me at verse 9. And I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and I gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. The book of Ezra, which is, as I said last week, the companion book to Nehemiah, Ezra is offered an armed escort in chapter 8, similar to the one offered to Nehemiah here. But Ezra refuses the escort as a matter of faith Ezra was serving as a preacher to the people of Jerusalem wanted to bear witness to his trust in God's protection and as a result he refuses the offer of Persian soldiers to accompany him and his people on their way back to Judah on the basis as he states in Ezra chapter 8 verse 22 that, quote, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him. So what are we then to make of Nehemiah's acceptance of such an escort here? We to conclude, well, Nehemiah clearly doesn't have the same amount of faith as Ezra did. I don't think we're meant to do that at all. I think Nehemiah was just as conscious as Ezra was of God's gracious hand. He just said it in the previous verse. So you have this interesting situation where you've one man's commitment to God ruling out the escort and one man's commitment to God welcoming it. Ezra regarded soldiers as evidence of a lack of confidence in God's power. Nehemiah views the soldiers as evidence of God's lavish goodness and protection. And I think there's a salutary lesson for us as Christians today here. Raymond Brown in his commentary lays it out this way. He says, Christians frequently differ on important issues and it's a mark of spiritual maturity if they can handle those differences creatively rather than engaging in damaging verbal warfare. First century believers differed on some questions and Paul urged them to stop passing judgment on one another. We're bound to think differently on occasions before we hastily judge other believers or ostracize them. We must make every attempt to understand and love them and discern what we can learn from them as we, quote, make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification, Romans 14:19), We must not rigidly stereotype believers into identical patterns of spirituality, end quote. Contrasting decisions of Ezra and Nehemiah were the result of both of them trusting in the goodness and the power of God then thirdly and lastly we come to the enemies of God. King Artaxerxes clearly is in some way on Nehemiah's side at this point but it turns out that there were certain people in the general vicinity of Jerusalem who certainly were not. We pick up the story again in verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and I gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen but when Sanbalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. As we continue through the book of Nehemiah, we're going to discover that these two men, Sambalite the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, are going to cast a long shadow over the entire story. Both of these men were men of of influence and power. Sambalat, if he isn't at this point, he will become the governor of Samaria. Tobias, a high-ranking official from the Ammonites, who were the enemies of Israel. According to verse 10, these two opposed any effort that sought to promote the welfare of the people of Israel. So that whereas Nehemiah had traveled a thousand miles to help a city, in which he had never lived, Sambalat and Tobiah showed no concern or care for neighbors in their own backyard. Actually, it was worse than that. Nehemiah's choice of words here suggests an almost diabolical, from the very pit of hell, rage that drives these enemies of Nehemiah. They cannot abide, they cannot stomach a man coming to seek good for the sons of Israel. So that we're not dealing here with mere human animosity. We're dealing here with the outworkings of what started in Genesis 3 at the fall in the Garden of Eden of the seed of the serpent, that is the seed of the devil, hating the seed of the woman, the seed of Eve that would lead to Jesus. Here in Jerusalem in 445 BC was just the latest expression of this hatred. And Nehemiah obviously is aware of this hostility, this opposition as he arrives in jerusalem so that after three days rest after his arduous journey he quietly starts to assess the situation but in a way that won't draw unnecessary attention so as we read on in the chapter he goes on a secret overnight reconnaissance exercise with just a few trusted men to to survey and inspect the walls and once he gets a lay of the land he begins Deliberate and vision-casting recruitment, encouraging the people with testimony of how he's seen God show his good hand already in this venture. And so in verse 18, we read that the people respond to his appeal. They respond in faith and they declare, let us rise up and build, so they strengthen their hands for the good work. This successful recruitment only fueled the fire of the opposition to this work, and now indeed with another recruit to the opposition, look at verse 19, when Zanbalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? This uh, weekend, uh, we had our presbytery meeting. I want to thank uh, Eric Wilkins and Davy Krumplar uh, for attending. and Murphy was there for a workshop on Friday as well. Uh, But yesterday we had an update from a couple of our pastors who minister in Brooklyn, New York. They'd been part of the Resurrection Brooklyn network of churches, which essentially uh, was forced to disband during the pandemic. And now these two teaching elders, Jemison Galt and Brian Stedman, are going to pastor together at the one remaining church from the network at Resurrection Clinton Hill. And the two men shared there's good news in how God has worked all of this out. For one, Brian is now able to go from working four jobs to support his family to just one job of pastoring full-time at this church. Also, for the first time since that network began, there's the possibility of the church owning its own building, albeit a building that needs tremendous work. But I tell you this because at the end of their report, Brian and Jemison asked for prayer because since the relaunch of Resurrection Clinton Hill, both of their families have faced tremendous spiritual attacks, particularly aimed at their respective families. It's manifested itself in new physical health issues and mental health issues. Jemison's 13-year-old son had a gun stuck in his face two weeks ago. And it would be great that as the Lord reminds you of these pastors and their families, that we would all be praying for them. But it's also a reminder to us that the opposition to the Lord's work continues to this day. Whether through people like Sambalat and Tobiah, or through what the Apostle Paul calls the principalities and powers, the spiritual forces of evil, there has been and always will be until Jesus' return, diabolical opposition to God's kingdom and his people. We're going to see it throughout this book of Nehemiah. It starts here in chapter 2. But we need to be prepared for it as well as God's ongoing people. But look at Nehemiah's response to his opponents, these enemies of God. Verse 20, "'Then I replied to them, "'The Lord of heaven will make us prosper, "'and we his servants will arise and build, "'but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem.'" Here's the promise that no matter what the opposition is that we might face as God's people, whatever suffering might come our way because of our testimony of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter how difficult our circumstances might be, Christians need to remember the church will never be defeated, God's people will never be defeated, we will never be defeated because God is sufficient for all of our needs. The God of heaven will make us prosper. Jesus himself made the same promise to his church in Matthew 16, responding to Peter's confession that Jesus was the Christ, the promised Messiah. Jesus said, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, that is on this confession, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Of course, Jesus knew something that Nehemiah didn't. He knew that Nehemiah's actions under the gracious hand of God were a preview of what Jesus would come to do. Nehemiah willingly left a palace in order to go to a broken world of despair where God's people were in need. He left a place of privilege and security for opposition. And backbreaking labor. And as we saw last week, if Nehemiah hadn't done what he did, Jerusalem would not have been rebuilt. There would not have been a Jewish context, a Jewish culture for Jesus to be raised in, and therefore no Jewish Messiah to fulfill God's promises of redemption and forgiveness and hope, and therefore no hope for us either. But Nehemiah's story was also a shadow of a much greater story. Because the greater Nehemiah is Jesus himself, who willingly left the heavenly palace and stepped down from the right hand of the ultimate king, giving up glory and security to come to our broken world of need. He joined the blue-collar workforce as a carpenter. He spent the bulk of his 33 years of life building things. And the greater Nehemiah didn't just come at the risk of death, he came with the certainty of it, because his death and subsequent resurrection and ascension were the key to the salvation of all who will repent of their, their opposition to God, because all of us in some way have opposed God, repent of our sins, put our trust in him. That all of what Jesus has done is the key to our salvation, the key to this prosperity, this prosperity. The key to the gates of hell never, never, never prevailing against his church. So Brian Stedman and Jemison Galt and you and I can say to the principalities and powers of darkness, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in this kingdom. Friends, the one who moves successfully from prayer to action never loses sight of this good hand of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your constant availability to us, that even as we speak now, we marvel that there are surely people in other churches, in this town, in this county, in this state, in this nation, in this world, praying to you right now, and it doesn't phase you. You're always there to hear us and to respond. For that we thank you. And we thank you for your power, the power that can do the kind of things that you did for Nehemiah before our you continue to do. The power that raised Jesus from the dead and is available to every believer now as we live a life of faith and obedience. Thank you that you will never allow your church to fall, but will always move us towards flourishing and prosperity ultimately we know when jesus returns and ushers in the new heavens and the new earth we thank you for all your promises fulfilled in him amen